So we'll be in Acts chapter 25 today, if you'll turn there. We do live in a day of great advances in technology and medicine, innovation, creativity, but no matter how modern our schools are or how much knowledge we have or what training we possess, there's something we're characteristically pretty lame at, and that's waiting. Would you agree? Like all that knowledge, conveniences, I don't know if that adds to the problem, but we struggle to wait. We don't like waiting because we don't feel like we should have to quite often. Uh, I don't like it when computers load slow. You know, it's a slow loading computer. It's like, ah, and it's probably only 30 seconds, but it could feel like an hour. Uh, I don't like it when, and it's always when you're running a little bit late and there's some ice on your windscreen and it's taking forever to thaw and you're like, getting a bit impatient, you start running the windscreen wipers and it's just not happening and you're, uh, you're using more water on it. And, uh, I think we've all felt that. Do you like it when you pull up to a red light and you're, you're skipped in the cycle and you're having to wait an extra whole cycle, you know, maybe two or three minutes, you have to sit there and it's like, ugh. Yeah, we don't like waiting. I don't like waiting. Do you associate waiting with wasting time. Sometimes I do. I feel like you're wasting my time if you're making me wait. I equate the two. If I'm having to wait, my time is being wasted because I feel entitled, because of my pure motives, of course, I feel entitled that I shouldn't have to wait longer than I deem reasonable. You know that having to wait is actually, it's not wasting time, it's working time. It's a good opportunity for us to work on developing patience. We know that if you want to get stronger, you have to go to the gym. If you want to get better at sport, you have to train. If you want to learn that musical instrument, you have to apply yourself and continue doing it day after day. Well, patience is very much the same way. We need to apply ourselves and embrace that labor. Think about what how God describes the qualities of love in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. That's the first thing. Love is patient. It is loving to be patient. If you are not patient, it is unloving. And that's sinful. So praise the Lord. He's given us the fruit of the Spirit, patience. Love is patient. Love is kind. In Psalm 40, verse 1, David said, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. As you read through that chapter in Psalm 40, he says there were so many evils around, innumerable evils, more than the hair upon my head. So it wasn't like it was uh, some downtime for him. He was in a lot of trouble. There was more trouble than he could number. And he said in that psalm, he said, God, make haste to help me. Like, I'm in trouble. Hurry, God, please help me. But he said, I waited patiently, and he inclined his ear to me. It's like God leaned in when he was patient. He was patient to wait and seek the Lord, and God drew near to him. Don't we want God to draw near to us in the moment of our trouble and our difficulty? Abraham, you see in the the scriptures, many people of faith had waiting seasons. God said when he was 75 years old that of him there would be a great nation, the father of many nations, and he didn't even have a son yet. 
Then he waited. He was 90 years old when he was, God reaffirmed his promise, you're going to have a son. And then he was 100 years old when his son was finally born. That's a lot of waiting. But God fulfilled his promise. God did as he said. Paul was another person who had been given a promise. God had said, you're going to testify for me in Rome. And two years passed while he was imprisoned. Hadn't done anything wrong, but he's kept in Caesarea. There's no light at the tunnel. There's no change in his circumstances. All Paul has is the promise of God. That's all he has to go on. But he rests in the sovereignty of his Savior, the one who made time. And we can rest in him as well. So Acts 25, starting in verse 1, is where we pick up our text. Now when Festus had come to the province, after three days he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul. They petitioned him, asking a favor against him, that he would summon him to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. Portius Festus, he succeeded Antonius Felix as governor sometime between 58 and 60 AD. His reign only lasted a couple, two or three years because of his uh, death. Uh, Festus generally has a very favorable description historians give him, unlike Felix. And he was only days into his new job in Caesarea, so he's the governor over all Judea, and that includes Jerusalem. And only a few days into that role, he goes down to Jerusalem to speak with the high priest, and it says that they informed him against Paul. So they don't talk about Paul, they inform him against him. And they want the death penalty for Paul. Paul may have felt a bit forgotten, right? Two years, Caesarea. Man, how long am I going to languish here? Well, his enemies had not forgotten him. They bring it up. When the new guy comes, they're thinking, man, we couldn't get what we wanted when uh, Felix was in office, but with this new governor, maybe he'll give us an opportunity to carry out our scheme and kill Paul. And so they wanted him dead. That would be a bummer if you were Paul and you heard about this. I mean, the the hatred, the scheming, the bitterness after two years that we see, we see that time alone cannot change hearts and minds. Uh, Time alone does not heal all wounds and, and bitterness doesn't just dissipate like a vapor over a boiling pot. It sits inside of us. It can fester and grow and, um, the devil's always ready to bring that to mind, to remind us. I had a friend who, um, he had been ill-treated by the company when I worked in the trade years ago. And uh, he would always bring to mind how badly he was treated. This is the one time. He would always refer to this one time why he left work early. He's like, man, I remember that one time they cheated me. And he got a lot of mileage out of that. Um, just He was just embittered against the company, and so he could always go to this one thing to justify why it's okay that I leave early today. And, and that just can sit inside of us, and, and we can justify sin. There's a phrase coined from the Native, tradition, Native American tradition to bury a hatchet as part of a peace agreement. So a hatchet would have been a weapon to the Native Americans, and each side would take a hatchet or an axe, and they would bury it in the ground. It was a symbolic symbol to say, I'm not going to pick up a weapon against you. I'm going to bury that weapon, and it's out of my reach. It can't be used. It's just going to rot away in the ground, and we're going to be at peace. 
For our part, we ought to forgive instead of burying the offense within us. Because we can bury that offense and we can hearken back to it and we can become bitter and remain that way. It's faith in Christ that releases us from the bondage of bitterness and unforgiveness. And when we are offended, we, we hand those over to the Lord. Even when someone has an axe to grind against us, we're able to do the things that please God. Starting in verse 4. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse the man to see if there is any fault in him. And when he had remained among them more than 10 days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. When he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove, while he answered for himself, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I offended in anything at all. Festus was not willing to move Paul to Jerusalem because he was in the Roman court. He was to be judged there. And he said, hey, I'm returning to Caesarea shortly. If it's convenient for you and you still want to press charges against him, come down to Caesarea and you can do so. It says he remained among the Jews for 10 more days. And then he went to Caesarea and it says the very next day. So they were very motivated. They make this trip and the very next day they lay their charges against Paul. And it says serious charges, grievous charges in the King James, heavy uh, charges that they believed were worthy of death. They accuse him before Festus. Accusations, they're empty without evidence. They have no proof. They have no evidence of what they've said. And it's good to remember that accusations alone are not worthy to make a binding judgment. And interesting, under Jewish law, no one could be put to death except without two or three witnesses. That's in Deuteronomy 17. And the really, I guess, almost creepy or uncomfortable thing about it is if you were one of the people who was a witness against someone and the death penalty would be carried out, you would be involved in carrying it out. You would put your hand upon them. You would be the first to throw a stone. And so, because now you had executed this person, if it was discovered that you lied, your life would be at stake because you have cost this person a life with a false allegation. So it was something you took really serious. If you were going to accuse someone of something that was worthy of death, know that your life is, you're really putting your life against theirs. Paul answered for himself. He says, I haven't done anything against the temple, against the the Jews, nothing against Caesar. I haven't offended anything. He was accused but blameless. And then the politician becomes political. Verse 9, but Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For I am, if, if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you shall go. 
Festus had only recently assumed his role in Caesarea. He had spent a, a good amount of time with these Jews um, to start this uh, his service. And like Felix before him, Festus was happy to do Jews the fa- a favor because it was politically expedient. He was His role was to keep peace amongst the different groups. And uh, this had always been a real touchy area, Jerusalem. And Paul's case presented an opportunity for him to utilize this unfinished business of Felix to improve public relations. It would go, it would at least, uh, you know, help things out temporarily to, to smooth those relations. But Paul, he's not willing to be used as a pawn in a charade. He says, you know, Festus, you know, I haven't done anything wrong. You very well know that. You know that this is just a joke. But, Hey, I'm a Roman, and as a Roman, I am where I'm supposed to be. And as I cannot have a just trial here, nor in Jerusalem, I don't know if he even knew about that plot to kill him on the way. He says, I appeal to Caesar. He exercised his legal right. I believe that he did not make this appeal to Caesar because he believed that's the only way he could have justice. In the court of Caesar Nero, I believe his confidence was not in the Roman justice system, but in God. He trusted that God would exonerate him, that God would fulfill the word that he had spoken. He had said, you're going to testify for me in Rome. And if he returned to Jerusalem, that would be actually moving away from where he believed God was leading him, which was to go to Rome. And so he knew Caesar Nero is in Rome. That's where I'm going to appeal to under my right. I'm sure that two years of the runaround was also a factor in his decision. If you can imagine being two years, you haven't done anything wrong, but you're imprisoned, and you're away from family and friends, um, what would you be thinking? How would you be feeling in that time? And so now he's appealing to use his right as a Roman to have this case ended. Festus, was in. he says, well, he's within his rights. He conferred with his council. You want to go to Caesar? You can go to Caesar. So it was done. Now, many have wondered if Paul made the correct decision. Was he right to appeal to Caesar? I'm confident that even if Paul had not appealed to Caesar, God would have fulfilled his word in some way to bring him to Rome. That's unquestioned. Matthew Henry said this. He said, his enemies hoped the cause would be ended in his death. His friends hoped it would be it would end in his deliverance. They are both disappointed. The thing is left as it was. It is an instance of the slow steps which providence sometimes takes by which we are often made ashamed both of our hope and of our fears and are kept still waiting on God. Waiting in unknowns, that can be a revelation of who we're trusting in or what we're looking for, can't it? If Paul had hoped that a new governor would bring justice for him, he would have been disappointed. If he hoped that Jews would drop the case because all this time has passed and it would have been distressing for him to hear them ramp up their rhetoric against him and actually remind the new governor about him, that they wanted him dead. If if Paul's hope rested in God alone, however, he could rest in the will of God, whether he's in Caesarea on his way back to Jerusalem or in Rome because he's looking to the Lord. 
I was really touched by David's words the other day in Psalm 108, 12, and 13. It says, Give us help from trouble, for the help of man is useless. Through God we will do valiantly, for it is he who shall tread down our enemies. From the time that we're born, we're conditioned to look for help from other people. As much as we want to be independent and self-sufficient and strong, we do need others. And if, if you're a king, you're not a very good king without trustworthy, loyal subjects, right? People who are willing to fight for you, people who are willing to provide, people who are that you can trust to have good counsel from. And as a king, with, with Saul coming against him early in his life, and then David, um, even with his other son, Absalom, who was trying to scheme against him, I'm sure he was always on the lookout for good, honest, loyal, strong men and women that he could put in positions of leadership, that he could trust, right? But he says, I have learned not to hope in men. There's no hope in men. If I put my hope in them, it's going to be dashed. But God, he's the one who fights for me. He's the one who treads down my enemies. So he hoped in God because God was the one who was his savior and his help. Faithful generals and a massive army cannot help like the divine providence that we have in God. Nothing can help like he can. And we can look for help from lawyers and doctors and friends and family. And we can look for hope in all those places. But in the end, there's no hope there. There's no victory. It's only in Christ, in God, where we have strength and the ability to persevere. Acts 25, 13. And after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. When they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a certain man left by a prisoner, by Felix, about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem, asking for a judgment against him. To them I answered, It is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accusers face to face and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. Therefore, when they had come together, without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. We see a couple new people on the scene. King Agrippa, specifically Herod Agrippa II. He was the eighth and final ruler of Judea of the Herodian dynasty, and his sister and rumored lover, Bernice. They visit Festus in Caesarea. Now Agrippa, as king of the Jews, he was well-versed in Judaism. We see historically he was quite meddlesome that he took upon himself to appoint and remove high priests, something that the king is not supposed to do. And he also uh, built this uh, large watchtower on the Herodian palace so he could peek in to the temple courts and see what was happening. So the Jews, in defiance, they built a wall to block him. So they were just going back and forth. Uh, but he was very interested in, in really uh, involving himself with the worship in a way that he should not have, and the people hated him for it. This Agrippa and Bernice, they were siblings to the wife of Felix, Drusilla. We heard about her last week. After they had been visiting for a few days, Festus, 
he brings up Paul and his interesting case. He's like, oh, by the way, you know, when Felix was here, he had this prisoner. And the, I heard all these bad things about him. They, they wanted a judgment against him. But I said, hey, it's not our way to send him to Jerusalem unless he, the accusers are with him face to face. And we met without delay. And he continues in verse 18. When the accusers stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such things as I supposed, but had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died whom Paul affirmed to be alive. And because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. But when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. Festus is getting ready to hear these accusations being brought before him. And it was kind of like a domestic squabble over the remote control before the high court. He's like, what is this? This has nothing to do with me. They're just arguing about their own religion. And, and it's not even an accusation. They're just debating. They're just, they don't agree about this certain Jesus they're talking about. It wasn't about him destroying the temple or organizing a riot. He, he hadn't stolen anything. He hadn't murdered anybody. He, he was a bit nonplussed about what happened that day. Hmm. And I'm not really sure what they're even talking about. No formal accusation. Do you like how he says a certain Jesus? I think it's interesting because it shows us he didn't really know much about Jesus at all. And we can assume that because we have been exposed to things like Christmas and there's churches that people know about Jesus, um, perhaps there's some people who haven't heard the name of Jesus or perhaps only as a cuss word. Um, but they, I'm sure many people in Oz have heard the name of Jesus, but they don't know who he is what he's done, what he said, why his death and his resurrection is significant. There's many people who do not know these things. And uh, Festus, a learned man, he did not know these things. Spurgeon said, Brethren, this is why we must keep on preaching Jesus Christ, because he is still so little known. The masses of this city are as ignorant of Jesus as Festus was. We don't follow any old Jesus we do follow a certain Jesus, a particular one. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the way, the truth, and the life. Agrippa was intrigued by Paul's case. He's like, this is interesting. I'd like to hear him. He says, tomorrow you will. Now, uh, you're going to have to wait for that discourse. We're not going to get into that today. So you'll have to have a little bit of patience for that. Verse 23, so the next day when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus' command, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death, and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write, 
for it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. The following day provided quite a spectacle for the townsfolk in Caesarea. It was a major event as King Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. And that's a great word that you don't hear very often. Um, it, it was, I mean, akin to a triumph. There was a large parade, a procession. There would be the 5,000 uh, soldiers that were stationed there at attention. The generals, rulers, the nobles are all paying homage to King Agrippa. It's a very showy parade. And I'm sure the whole city was moved. The, you know, the kids are running around and everyone's getting a look at what's going on. And, uh, so after this parade, Festus commands that Paul be brought before King Agrippa. So it's in front of a huge amount of people. And Festus explained the Jews both in Jerusalem and here, there, there's that well as well, that the Jews both in Caesarea and in Jerusalem, they were saying, we're done with Paul. He's not fit to live. And he says, I've examined him and he's innocent of all charges. And even as Claudius Lysias needed to write a letter when he delivered him to Felix, so Festus needed to write a letter of the accusation sending it to Caesar, but he had no idea what to write. And he's like, I'm hoping that because, and he admits this in front of everyone, I'm glad that King Agrippa is here because he has knowledge of these things. And after he examines him, gives me some feedback, I'll actually have something to write because it's pretty unreasonable to send this prisoner without knowing even what to write about him. Now he's caught in his hypocrisy a bit, isn't he? Because he says it's, he, he wants to do the Jews a favor. He thinks it's unreasonable to send him because they have no real charges, but he doesn't think it's reasonable just to let him go and to call it off. So he's he's continuing on because, man, he, he's going to do the Jews a favor here. Keep them happy. Appealing to Caesar shows me that Paul was not in a hurry for judgment in his case. Perhaps after two years, some would have jumped at the chance to go back to Jerusalem. It was only, you know, a, a couple days trip. Um, and just at the hope that there could be some resolution. His family there was there. The church was there. To take it to Rome, this was going to be five months of voyages. That does not sound fun to me. I don't know if you guys have your sea legs. Have you ever been out on the ocean or a sea when it's choppy? And and once you're out there and you become ill, you cannot escape it. You, there's nowhere to go. I, I've only been, you know, eight hours off the coast and got a bit sick. And boy, that was miserable. So he, he's choosing that over two days on land, getting perhaps a resolution in this case. So he's not taking the easy way. He's not taking the short way. He's actually taking the long way, the patient way. Appearing before Caesar Nero, who, who was not a godly or honorable man in any sense. Paul was willing to choose the patient way because that's God's way. God is patient and long-suffering towards us, isn't he? And that's what's tied up in the word patience, is long-suffering. Willing to suffer for a long time. That's patience. I imagine much prayer and even tears went into Paul's decisions to appeal. 
And if God is patient and long-suffering towards us, shouldn't we be patient and long-suffering towards the circumstances he allows? Some stumble at the fact that God at any moment could miraculously intervene. He could just change things. He could make things better or make things more to our liking. When we're tired of waiting, that's when we're being tested to see if we'll keep trusting God as he allows, even with what we might call delays. In each delay, God has purposes that are just as important as us reaching our intended destination. Think about that. In the suffering, in the thing that we're forced to be patient about, God is doing something. He is moving you. He is working in a way to accomplish something that's just as important as you having what you desire or what you feel you need at that moment. We rush around, but God's never in a hurry. We don't read of any point in Scripture where Jesus was late. He was never late. He was exactly in the will of the Father all the time. He was exactly where God wanted him to be. Remember when Jesus is at Perea, that's on the east side of the Jordan, and he receives word from Mary and Martha that their brother, Lazarus, one that he loved, was sick. They said, the one whom you love is sick. Why don't we turn there? John 11, starting in verse 4. John 11, starting in verse 4. They were concerned. They, it's not like sending an email, sending a messenger. They sent somebody with a message to find Jesus. They had an idea where he was, and they sent a messenger to find him, and they delivered this message because it was urgent. They said, the one whom you love is sick. John eleven four. When Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Let's be honest. When we're hurting, when we're suffering, we're not benevolent or grateful for our distress to continue, even if it means the glory of God. I'm not that benevolent. I'm like, Lord, make it end now. Help it to never have happened, you know? (laughs) And when it continues on and on and on, it, it more than tries your patience. It shows your patience is broken. Like, I don't have patience here. Jesus had the power to heal Lazarus, even over distance. We read that, that at times he just said the word and someone was healed in another place. When people came to Jesus, everyone that came to him, he was able to heal. So there was no question about his ability to heal. And that's why they were talking to him. That's why they sent this message, because they knew Jesus could help and Jesus loved him. So certainly out of love, what would Jesus do? He would come and he would heal Lazarus. But notice what it says in verse 6. After just saying he loved Mary, he loved Martha, he loved Lazarus. So, when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. 
Jesus hears the news from people he loves, and he remains unmoved for two days. It's about an 8 to 12 hour journey by foot. You can ask, well, did Jesus care? Of course he cared, because he really did love him. But there was more going on here than Lazarus could feel or Mary or Martha could see. There was something Jesus was going to accomplish that they did not understand at that time. See, they knew where Jesus was. They knew how long it should take him to return because the messengers come back. He says, yeah, I sent the message. You told them. Oh, yeah, we told them. And, and I bet they caught themselves looking out the door or the window. Where is he? You know, go to the edge of the town. Do you see anything? Is he coming? And expecting him to be there. And he's not there day after day. Doesn't he know Lazarus is dying? Why won't he respond to the message? He responded by staying. And this is very confronting, isn't it? That he would remain unmoved when there's people that he loves that are petitioning him. So at a point, after receiving the message, he gathers the disciples together and says, we're going to head back to Bethany. And Jesus knew full well that Lazarus had died while they remained in Perea. He knew his delay would cost Lazarus his life. Let's move on until verse 14. So John eleven fourteen. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Isn't this an unexpected thing for Jesus to say? Is this what you would have expected him to say? No, Jesus does this constantly. If you read him, you just say, wow, he, he blows my mind. He's on a whole nother level of wisdom that I just don't get. And so he, he's not disappointed for Lazarus. He's like, oh, yeah, too bad for him. No, he says, um, I'm glad for your sakes I wasn't there. Not, I'm sorry for Lazarus' sake I wasn't there. He puts it in the positive. And he says, to the end that you may believe. Now, isn't he talking to believers? He's talking to people who have said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. We know there's one of them who didn't believe, Judas, but Jesus wanted them to believe. And he wanted them to believe at a different level that they had never believed before because they had seen him heal sick people, uh, raise up a paralytic, cleanse lepers, open the eyes of the blind, uh, calm storms, walk on water, even raise the dead. He had raised the dead. But he hadn't raised someone who was really dead, had been dead for a while, and had begun to decompose. That hadn't happened yet. So he was going to take them to a new level of faith that they didn't have. They didn't even know they needed, but he knew. By the time they did arrive in Bethany, Lazarus had been dead and buried for four days. If we were Mary and Martha and we had a sick brother, I know what I would have been thinking. Like, Jesus, if he comes and, and heals Lazarus, he'll have glory. You know, he'll be glorified. God will be glorified for that. Like, wouldn't this be the best way for God to get glory from this terrible situation? Well, waiting until Lazarus died would actually give more glory to God. So after arriving, Jesus proclaims, he says, hey, I'm the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, you'll never die. 
Mary, Martha, disciples, others go to the tomb with Jesus and they arrive there. Jesus is weeping. He's mourning the loss of his friend because he loved him. And everyone said, see how he loved him. They see him emotionally move and he's like, all right, roll that stone away. And they're like, but wait a second. You know, he's been dead for days. It's going to be foul. There will be a stench. Martha states the obvious. But the words of Jesus prevail. He says, didn't I say if you would obey, you'd see the glory of God? If you'd believe, you'd see the glory of God. So the word, the stone was rolled away. John 11, verse 41. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, Loose him and let him go. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did, believed in him. After that stone was rolled away, that smell of decay hit their noses, and I'm sure people clutched their faces and covered their mouths because it was foul. And they go, yep, definitely dead. No question. And Jesus prays audibly before them all. And he thanks God he was heard. And Jesus does not pray the way that we can pray. He didn't say, Lord, please raise Lazarus from the dead. He doesn't pray that. He says, Lord, thank you that you've heard me. And I'm only saying this because of the people around so that they can hear and they know that you sent me. So we thank the Lord. And then he just addresses the dead. He says, Lazarus, come forth. And he did. <laughs> I mean, that's wild. The voice that stilled the waves and comforted the hearts of Mary and Martha, it calls out to the decaying Lazarus, come forth, and he did. If you had witnessed that, what would you have said? What would you have done? How would you have reacted? Like you're like, you know, when someone's being pranked and they're just really confused, I mean, that would have been like for everybody all at the same time. Even the disciples, they're like, whoa, what is happening? wonder how Lazarus felt. He's like, I just heard him call me. I mean, we don't get to hear him talk about it, but that's that would be an interesting interview. If you saw this, would you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he had been sent from the Father? If you saw that, would you believe? Some did. Many did. It says, the result of four days of responding... Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. There were people who believed who would not have believed if he had just been healed. If Jesus had just said the word, there's a lot of people not believing. But because he waited and he remained unmoved for a time, and then he came at the right time, many people believed. Many people were saved. Waiting and believing is the path to seeing the glory of God. I don't know how long you, you've had a waiting season or the waiting season that has just started for you or 
you really just want to end. But don't wait to seek Jesus. Don't wait to cry out to him. You cry out to him right now, today. Today is the day of salvation. Don't put off a relationship with him because he does love you and he has power to heal you. And he will answer in his way and in his time. And it may not be in the way you expect, but I guarantee you he is working. And just like he was using that to bring belief to souls, so he's using your pain and the thing that you have to be patient for. Waiting times are not a waste of time. As much as it feels like it. When we trust in Jesus. And divine providence, it may move very slow for our liking. You guys agree? Seems a bit slow. Sometimes four days, four years, four, four decades. It can take that long. Moses, he, he's thinking, you know, God's revealed to me, I am going to be the one who leads the children of Israel out of Egypt. At the age of 40, he goes and kills a man to show that he's on their side. And it wasn't until 40 years later that he was sent back by God to do that very thing. And then it took 40 years to actually enter into the land of promise. God's not in a hurry. We can trust him. Instead of looking to, to the light at the end of the tunnel or looking to a, a slight change in circumstances to help us feel better about things, let's look to Jesus, the light of the world, in faith. And may God in each of us cultivate that heart of patience that fruit of the Spirit that brings great glory to Christ's name. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that the waiting times are times where you're working, and you're working in us, you're working through us, and you're working to, to reveal yourself to others. Lord, your ways are so beyond ours. I confess my own impatience about many things, Lord, and I pray that you would give me that that love that is patient and love that is kind. Love that is willing to wait cheerfully and that cries out to you in trouble. Lord, I thank you for those seasons of waiting and all that you accomplish in them. And I do pray, Lord, for healing. I pray for restoration. I pray that for those who are struggling, Lord, that you would uphold them. Help us to remember, Lord, that, that help in men is vain. There's no, there's no hope in in our circumstances changing, there will always be something wrong. But thank you, Lord, that you are good and in you is no darkness at all, that you are light and holiness and righteousness and you have purposes that are far beyond our ability to perceive. So, Lord, we rejoice in you and we thank you. We thank you that when you heard the, the voice of the ones that you loved, you remained unmoved for a couple of days. Lord, tarry not when we cry out to you, but should you wait. Lord, give us faith to believe you and open our eyes to see your answer. In Jesus' name, amen.